Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode eight, Counterintelligence and Election Security. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. I am joined today by a very special guest, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Wilkerson is currently a distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary and a member of the National Task Force on Election Crises and the Transition Transition Integrity Project. Wilkerson served as Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005 and was the Associate Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff under Richard Haas. Before that, Wilkerson served in the U.S. Army for 31 years, and in that time he was on the faculty at the U.S. Naval War College, served as Special Assistant to Colin Powell when he was Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and was the Deputy Director and then Director of the U.S. Marine Corps War College. We're extremely lucky to have Colonel Wilkerson on the episode today, given his background in government service, his bona fides straddling the real world of intelligence and counterintelligence work with teaching service members and undergraduates in the classroom, and the current roles he plays on the National Task Force on Election Crises and the Transition Integrity Project. Welcome, Colonel. Hello, James. Good to be with you. So I'd like to have a start by discussing broadly the counterintelligence challenges that you think the U.S. faces during this election before turning to your work with the task force in the Transition Integrity Project. So what are the the counterintelligence challenges in this election? You know, we've heard a lot about 2016 and the election, Clinton and Trump, and the various criticisms and conspiracy theories about it. I, uh, in June of 2019, when we first assembled the National Task Force, had the opportunity to listen to some of what I would consider uh, the best technology experts in America as they briefed us on what were the possibilities with regard to what we loosely call cyber warfare or disinformation or choose your term, depending on how effective and how comprehensive it was. And frankly, I was stunned at some of the things they showed me. For example, how you could go through a litany of real people, that is to say people who actually live and work and exist in the world. And from those thousands of people, very swiftly with the right computer technology, build up a person, a person who looked, spoke, acted on screen and so forth, just like they were a normal citizen, but they don't exist. They have no credentials. They have nothing that you can find in the background. They just don't exist because they're computer simulations, but they then are filled with all manner of disinformation, of attacks on American democracy and so forth, And they infiltrate the social media and deliver these attacks, deliver these messages, if you will, this disinformation. Um, It's quite stunning to see how sophisticated it was. And and of course, if you have the right computer capabilities, you can build thousands of these people and you can get them into systems all over America, every state of the 50 states. Uh, it's, It's quite disconcerting to see what can happen. But I must say that the majority of this, both speculative and looked at from the past, actually confirmed from the past, is more aimed at destroying our confidence in our democracy than it is doing anything else. That's bad enough, 
But I think a lot of Americans, when they see that sort of thing, hear that sort of thing, will mentally discard it. It's not really going to bother them that much or, or change their minds that much. Their minds are probably already made up. They either think a democracy is failing or they want to support it and keep it alive. That seems to be the two really rigid positions in this country right now. So I wasn't that alarmed by what they told us the effects might be, but I was quite alarmed as I watched what the technology allowed people to do. And as I thought about it, as a military professional, particularly what you could do with that if you wanted to be a little more uh, ruthless about it in terms of not just hacking systems, but also uh, spreading on other kinds of disinformation. And what do I mean by hacking systems? Let's just take a look at Texas, where the National Task Force actually looked at a scenario in Texas where there are about 27 precincts, voting precincts, that have absolutely no backup, none whatsoever. So you could take a high school skill level hacker, go in and steal quite readily a couple million votes, and then you ask the governor, the secretary of state of the state of Texas, what are you gonna do now? They don't have an answer, really. They don't have a statutory answer. They don't have a situational answer. And by that, I mean, what do you do with those voters? They've already voted. You can't retrieve their vote specifically. Say you were gonna hold a reelection for that group. Um, how could you do that fairly? Because those people would already know probably the right. national results or very right. nearly so. And how would you assure they voted the same way they voted the first time around? Uh, so interesting questions. And when you say hacking in that instance, I, I know that Texas, I believe, is one of the states that doesn't require uh, paper backup to every voting system. Are you are you talking about people infiltrating the results transmission or where the, the votes are tabulated, that system? It could be any number of places. The briefings I've had, both from Homeland Security cyber people and also these groups of technicians who are or technologists, I should say. And, and to give you some idea, they were from places like Alphabet and Google and Facebook. So smart people. <laughs> they knew what they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it could be anywhere in the stream. In fact, I was stunned somewhat. I'd heard it before, but I'd never heard it with the veracity that I think I heard it this time. That you don't even have to be on a computer. Your system doesn't even have to be on a computer that's hooked up to the internet. Correct. They can still get in there. They can yeah. still do things with your computer, with your system. Yeah. Are these threats coming from Russia only at this point? Do we have a sense of whether that's still true or whether it's broadened beyond Russia? In terms of capabilities, I think it's coming from those countries that you could probably rattle off, China, Russia, Iran, um, and the UK and France and Germany, who uh, feel like they need to defend against, um, let me just be honest, us. After all, we're the ones who tapped the UN Security Council during my administration, George W. Bush's administration. We're the ones that were uh, recording Secretary Powell's telephone calls at the NSA, for example. We're the ones who have been involved in countless elections since 1947, all across the globe, uh, and probably are involved in some right now, even as we accuse others of being involved in ours. So th this is a, a type of warfare, if you will. I call it information warfare, more appropriate term today, I guess, is cyber warfare. 
So this is the kind of warfare that's been going on for a long time. It's just getting more and more sophisticated because of the technology. Do, do your colleagues assess any risk potentially coming from within the United States? Like maybe a nefarious actor who's here, hacktivist groups, um, a political party who would attempt the same kind of breaching of systems, but from within the United States? Well, let me just say that I know my political party has cheated like heck in the past. I know, for example, I think why Carl Rove looks so stunned on that Fox News show when they called Ohio for the other side and Rove essentially said, well, that can't be right <laughs> because Rove thought he was in, in Ohio. Um, I think what happened really, I think what happened was the Democrats figured out what he'd done before in Ohio, so they did it back to him. Uh, either they stopped his effort or they doubled his efforts. You go into a state or a precinct where there's a very, very solid polling situation that tells you it's going to be enormously close. You don't mm -hmm. want to go in some place where it's going to be a 50, 60, 100,000 vote margin and then change it because that's going to be very suspect. You go into a place where it's going to be very close, say maybe 1,000, 2,000 votes. And then you change it. You don't have to change it much, just on the margins, just a few votes, just a few places. Uh, and you can cause the election to swing. Is this anything new? No, it's just new technology. We used to stuff ballot boxes. We used to take names off gravestones in Texas and cast votes for them and so forth. We've always cheated in our elections. Um, but the dimensions of this cheating, the wholesale ability to impact whole precincts and whole states and maybe even the country rather swiftly due to technological improvements is new, I think. And I, frankly, I wish we'd never gone to these systems. I wish we still had the old paper ballot systems. Yes, you could cheat. Yes, you could fake ballots and so forth and so on. But I think the potential for foul play, if you will, in that old paper system was far less than the system we have today. Take the Indian a uh, young man from India who just for the heck of it wanted to see if he could hack into Alaska's elections, did so and influenced the elections and fessed up to it afterwards. I mean, that's how easy it is to do it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things when when I do international election observation, we're, we're consistently telling countries is the more you make it complicated to vote, the worse you're probably doing. Paper ballots are never bad. They can always be audited. Um, in Afghanistan, for instance, they reverted to a complete audit of all of the ballots that had been cast because they had the original ballots. They had them you know, kept in a, in, a, in a warehouse and they were able to go back to that. It seems like the United States in trying to improve things has maybe adopted some technological solutions that just create a lot more problems than it solves. I think you're right. And there's a psychological factor too. And I just watched it in Virginia as I voted. Um, I voted early, Virginia has very, uh, very, shall I say, loose absentee laws now. You really, absentee voting laws, you really don't have to have an excuse. But I'd voted that way a lot before because I was traveling a lot and that was a valid excuse. Uh, but I watched the lines, I talked to some people in the lines and so forth. And there's this psychological factor, even with some of the younger voters, that I want to put my ballot in somewhere. I don't want to put it in the mail. Yeah. I don't want to put it in a Dropbox. I want to see it go into that computer, get scanned and come out on the other side or whatever. Uh, there, there's that psychological aspect to it too. As we were looking at mail-in voting, 
with some of the people in this country who have really developed it to a fairly well, like in Colorado, Amber McReynolds, for example, um, Colorado is a model of mail-in voting, very little fraud, very efficient, but she was very uh, adamant about some people don't like putting it in the U.S. mail. They, so, so create a drop box. You know, it's one of these six thousand, seven thousand uh, dollar, very high security box that you put near a federal post office or some other place where it'll be safe. And uh, people drive up and put their ballot in that box. They feel psychologically, they feel better about doing that than they do putting it in the mail. Yeah. Well, I think one of the one of the the topics that you hit on, which we've discussed a lot in the podcast series, is that a lot of this isn't new. It's been sort of embedded in how the parties have tried to win elections or, you know, maybe skimp at the margins. But it is new to the psyche of the American voter to sort of have this many problems in the uh, conduct of the uh, administration of the election be revealed kind of all at once. And then you add COVID on top of that. And then you add kind of the, the political dynamics between Trump and Biden. Um, what, and I, I would even add something else, James. Yeah, I would I would add the atmosphere that President Trump has purposefully created. It's a uh, it's got a lot of Americans really concerned when the president of the United States says, well, I might not accept the results of the election and things like that. That deepens their concern. Well, so what are voters supposed to think if the issue of election integrity itself becomes weaponized? If one side can sort of use it to undermine the legitimacy when they're the they're the side for which if there probably is extensive cheating, they would benefit. You see that most dramatically um, in the tabletop exercises, people are calling them war games, I call them simulations, that we did at the Transition Integrity Project. When you're looking at um, how powerful the incumbent is, that, that was an insight we gained in the very first iteration, but I mean, you might call it a blinding flash of the obvious, but it's not something that strikes every American immediately. You own the levers of power if you're the incumbent. You own the Justice Department. You own Homeland Security. You own ICE. You own massive law enforcement mechanisms, federal. Um, it's incredible how much power you have to disrupt the other side, how much power you have to ensure the other side has less a chance than perhaps it should have. That's a real advantage, a significant advantage. And when you come across as a president who not only acknowledges that advantage, but tells you directly that he's going to use it, that becomes very disquieting. Do you think they've overplayed their hand? I'm, try I'm trying to understand that. It's like, if you want to cheat, you, you kind of want to be a little bit quiet about it, don't you? I mean, <laughs> I just wonder if they've over, if he's overplayed his hand a little bit, or if we're just so inured to everything he says at this point that it doesn't matter. A little bit of both, I think, but I, I like the first part of what you just said because I think it's valid. I think he has overplayed his hands. I even suspect that even he, watching him these last 48 to 96 hours, realizes that and is trying to back up a little bit on, on several of the key places where he has overplayed his hand. Um, what stuns me is he's not trying to back up on the COVID-19. He's trying to deepen his peril. Um, he badly managed the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and instead of sort of maybe not mea culpa, but a little apology, but 
instead of shifting and doing the things that many other countries are doing that he should be doing, uh, he seems to be deepening his peril with, with regard to that. And I see a lot of people, and I've heard from a lot of people um, who've fallen away from him. And some of these constitute what I would call his core base, evangelicals, for example, who are falling away from him. So you're right in the sense that I, I think he's, he's making his position even worse as we approach November the 3rd, which leads me to another conclusion that perhaps he has another uh, alternative in mind than actually standing for the election. Well, I have my hypotheses about what that might be, but what are, what are yours if, you're, if you care to share them? I, I think there's three possibilities and I'm, I'm hearing this from some of my Republican colleagues who are trying to find a life raft <laughs> to get off the Titanic. Uh, and most of them I've told, you waited too late, my friend. Um, but they, the, the idea that I'm hearing or ideas I'm hearing kind of bouncing off the walls is that he and Jared owe so much money, I'm told in the billions, if not multiple billions, uh, multiple tens of billions, um, that they're going to try to get out of here. Uh, it's almost mm -hmm. like... Uh, you know, the guy who robbed banks and said he robbed banks because that's where the money was. Well, the, money's <laughs> no, the money's no longer here. So the guy who robs the bank is going to cut and run. Um, I, I kind of see a, a Kim Philby scenario, if you will, uh, not, not to connote too much connection between him and the oligarchs in Russia. But it's quite clear to me that the last people to truly bail this vagabond this mafioso type who is living off debt and has lived off debt ever since he expended that 400 million from his daddy um, is in, in debt to some of these oligarchs and how much and to what extent their influence extends over him uh, is a question, a huge question, but I could see him going somewhere else. And I don't mean Costa Rica. Um, and I could see him departing before even the election occurs in order to try and prevent the prosecution that might be coming, the IRS uh, yeah. that are surely coming, and so forth. I, I don't put that outside the realm of the possible now. Were I he, um, I think I'd be considering something like that. Do you think his move of residency to Florida was in anticipation of this? Because obviously, if he were or members of his family were indicted in Manhattan, he wouldn't want to be in Manhattan. Um, but do you see the move to Florida as him seeing a more friendly place? And maybe that's not friendly enough. I mean, I know people have floated Saudi Arabia, the UAE, other places that they may try to go to that would you know, have some protective shell and then kind of allow them to live well, I think so lavishly. I think you've got a point. Uh, I think... Originally, maybe motivationally, the most powerful move or, or reason was he wanted the Florida vote. He wanted to be sure he got those electoral votes, um, looking back on 2000 and how decisive Florida was. Um, but those other reasons make sense, too. And you know, it, it takes me back to several occasions when I was at the State Department. Um, one, I was policy planner, and then the second one, I was chief of staff, when we were looking in the world for some place to send leaders and no country in the world would accept them. And in one case, we actually had a U.S. Air Force uh, cargo plane with a leader on board flying around about to run out of fuel <laughs> headed for him and no country would take the sky. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we finally found the country that would accept him and uh, got to land the airplane and let him off. 
So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the Transition Integrity Project and the kind of tabletop war games uh, simulations that you guys have talked about, and and I I I, I want to talk about some potential outcomes of the election. So what do you guys think is is likely to happen should Trump win? And it's pretty clear that he won. I mean, it's not kind of long and drawn out, but maybe quickly after the 3rd of November, we have a sense that he won in the Electoral College. What do you think Biden and the Democrats will do and Trump will do in return? I think the outcome might be a little different if he wins in the Electoral College and loses massively, like he did in 2016, three, four, five million votes in the popular vote. I'm not sure, and I hate to use these terms, but I don't, I don't think they're descriptive anymore, uh, the left. Uh, I'm not sure the other side, let's put it that way, will accept that. You might have 100 million people in the streets. And before someone looks at me and says, oh, come on, come on. Uh, let me tell you, I was in London when the protests against the Iraq war broke and I couldn't move. Oh, I was too when Colin Powell visited. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby's yeah, I remember. On, yeah, Bobby's own horses couldn't move. The horses yeah. were immobilized. Oh, the but, city was shut down completely. Yeah, two and a half million people, I think, was the final uh, verdict on it. But there, there could be a lot of people in the street. And we saw that happen in our simulation where we gave uh, a win to Trump. But nonetheless, uh, it was a sort of a, wasn't ambiguous, but it was uh, not exactly the kind of win the American people would feel comfortable about. In other words, Electoral College on one side, popular vote on the other side. I think that's a dangerous situation and we did not discount, nor did the simulation cause us to discount the so-called left, the opposition, Biden's people, whatever, coming to the street too. Uh, we didn't see them basically coming to the street with guns, which was what frightened us about the other side. Um, the FBI will tell you that uh, most of the three to 400 million guns in America can be uh, found in the, in the hands of uh, many of Trump's core base. Um, so we didn't think it would be that violent, but then you have to think about what the reaction to that many people being in the street, particularly for an extended period of time, and particularly in democratic strongholds, which most of the larger metropolitan areas are, uh, then you could have some violence. You could have some violence started by the other side trying to, quote, put down the insurrection, unquote. And what would Trump's response be to that? In the simulations, the people playing the Republican side who were, you know, what I call 800 pound gorillas, they were Republicans and you would recognize almost all of their names were I to give them. Um, they decided to uh, react to that and nationalize or so in some cases, Republican governors use the National Guard under their own auspices, which is allowed, of course, it's their guard. In other cases, the guard was federalized, and in one case, regionally, and the guard reacted to the people being in the street. And whenever you do something like that, you always have the potential for a Kent state, a Jackson state. Um, most Americans forget that Jackson state saw, I think, two people kill, Kent state four kill during the Vietnam protests during my time. Um, so, you know, it, you, anytime you get that many people in the streets, and you get some of the Proud Boys and some of the other groups like the Proud Boys trying to exploit their being in the street and helping violence to get started and so forth. It's a law enforcement nightmare. Mm -hmm. What about a second scenario where Biden wins pretty clearly and pretty early on? I think that's the most least, con 
the most least. That's the least contentious, probably. I can't guarantee it, of course, but our insights from simulations were that if it were a Biden blowout in the Electoral College and in the popular vote, and it were decisive, and if it were decisive, it might be identifiable as early as election night, closure of the polls, certainly within 24 to 48 hours, um, that would probably cause the least amount of protest. The one concern we had in that regard, um, the Trump team did all manner of things in the simulation. They ransacked the US government. Um, they destroyed any capacity virtually to do a transition. That is to say, there was no one there to oh, brief right. anyone on the Biden team. They destroyed all the papers. Um, they didn't leave messages in the center desk drawer in the West Wing. Uh, they just took the furniture and ran. And they took as much money as they could, too. And they traveled all over the world before noon on the 20th of January, when they must be gone. Um, they spent as much money as they possibly could, exploited the Secret Service to the extent that they could, staying in every Trump hotel around the world and so forth. So they, they did some pretty dastardly things between that decision and 20 January. But we didn't see any of the base come to the street and we didn't see all that much violence. So I hope that's the case. And as I said, I think that's probably the least contentious outcome we could have. What do you think Trump does himself if he's made a lame duck for those last two and a half months, if Biden does have a blowout win? What he did in the simulations was everything that he possibly could to one, profit in the last 70 days or so that they are in power. Um, and people think the president doesn't have any money. Ever since Richard Nixon, the executive, has figured out ways to have lots of money unappropriated money in many cases, but appropriated monies moved around in other cases. So it's not like they don't have money. So he did everything he could to steal as much as he could. And second, he did as much as he could to set up a very difficult transition, even an impossible transition in some respects for the incoming team and to make sure that if they retain the Senate, now this is critical, uh, this is why I think the Senate is as critical, if not more so, than the presidency, to make sure the Senate was alerted to and ready to not approve a single Biden appointee, to stall, to make it impossible for the new administration to get its government off the ground and so forth. And that's going to be critical, I think, because we're looking at a 1932-33 situation, possibly in the new year, with the economic circumstances having been utterly destroyed. Uh, with regard to the pandemic. And we're looking at 20, this year's debt is gonna be the highest annual debt in our history, so over 3 trillion. And the aggregate debt is approaching, a what, what do I call it? 25 trillion, that's a quarter of what? What's the next? Dimension? Yeah, I'm not sure, <laughs> 100 trillion, yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. We're at World War II levels of aggregate debt. And frankly, I was looking at a CBO report the other day that predicts, and this is, I think, even a very conservative prediction, that by 2030, 31, the federal budget will be utterly expended paying for the defense budget and entitlements. So there'll be no discretionary federal spending. Just look at where it's gone. I think I saw in 1960, it was around 60% of the budget. Now it's about 11%, and it's gonna to go to zero. 
So we're in a real trick bag economically and financially. And the new president, whoever it is, is going to have to take that on full bore or we're just going to keep going down the hole. So if Trump were able to disable the Biden administration for the first six months or so, that would be a tragic event. Yeah. And it, it makes me think that if, if Biden wins and comes into power, you know, it's going to take a long time to kind of undo what you just described. So you can imagine that he he sort of enters into office with a lot of popularity and goodwill and support, but that quickly erodes as the government isn't able to move fast enough to, to deal with all the things it has to deal with. Yeah, the history of the executive demonstrates that if you don't do a lot in the first 100, 150 days, uh, and I go back and always look at Ronald Reagan's first term and his second term where he virtually accomplished nothing, um, that, that's where you get your You've still got a political mandate. You've still got enthusiasm. You've got energy, imagination, creativity, you got all those things. That's where you need to make your mark is in that first, uh, let's say, six months of your first term. And they're going to have to be dealing with COVID, potentially health care, um, really immediate things that it, it, may, it may take some time before they get to the more you know, kind of fundamental economic stuff as well. And we, we have Dr. Michael Olsterholm from the University of Minnesota. I'm, I'm sure you know the name. Um, some have called him Dr. Death, but I've known him since 9-11 when he was at Johns Hopkins and impressed me very much as a man who knew what he was talking about when he talked about viruses and such. We were very concerned at that time with a terrorist group getting their hands on the virus or on something even more deadly and putting it out into the general population. So Michael is advising the National Task Force, and he has told us that we're going to be looking at a November, December, possibly, that make the summer look pale in comparison, that we might not have a vaccine until midsummer or later, and that we aren't over the hump yet by any means. And so that's kind of the way we're looking at it and trying to factor that into our predictions and our work with regard to the elections and, and the the uh, transition too, because the transition is critical. Right. So what about a third scenario, which is the kind of nightmare that everyone's trying to game out where it is, it's, it is unclear who actually won. It does take a while to count these mail-in ballots. Um, there are legal challenges in certain states and this just gets drawn out through uh, November, December. That's one that when we started in June and then when we moved through the first part of 2020 before the pandemic, and then the pandemic just heightened our fears um, that we were thinking increasingly probable, uh, the most likely scenario. I'm a little bit disabused of that now, particularly by what I'm hearing across the country with regard to Trump losing a lot of people. But nonetheless, it still lingers in the back of mind, and I think most of the minds uh, in the task force and in the tip too, um, that if that comes about, we are going to have a really bad 70 days or so between say the 9th or 10th, it might be that late or 11th of November when we finally get a determination that looks anywhere near decisive and supportable and inauguration day and the time in between when that closeness is disputed by everyone Trump can bring to bear on the problem. And of course, it is redisputed, if you will, or tries to be upheld if it's Biden as an as a ambiguous winner by the other side. 
and the courts are going to work 24 7 around the clock um we've already got the task force we've already got legal cases going um, we had one in uh normally we don't have our fingerprints on them they're pro bono and other law firms that are working um, we had one in Wisconsin where we won in the lower courts. Then that uh, Republican PAC Wisconsin higher court uh, reversed us, and now it's going to the Supreme Court. Uh, so we're taking on all these things, like, uh, for example, Governor Abbott's, say, in Texas uh, mm -hmm. for Harris County, four plus million people in Harris County. I know how populated Harris County is. I went to high school there. A lot more now and lots of, as you might imagine, minorities. So Governor Abbott is going to put one drop box in Harris County, mm -hmm. one drop box for four plus million voters. This is how the Republicans do it. Well, one of the one of the things that I've been thinking about is uh, the first presidential election I voted in was in 2000, actually when I was an undergrad at William and Mary. And, you know, people forget that the Brooks Brothers riot was what shut down the recount in Florida. You know, the, the Roger Stone was involved, allegedly trying to get, you know, the local party, Republican Party activists to shut down the recount, which they did. And then, of course, it 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 stopped and went to the Supreme Court. Are you all are you guys worried at the threats of violence or just intimidation outside of uh, election count centers, uh, election administrators, centers, legislatures or courts once they have to start um, adjudicating all this? Very much so particularly because we have roughly 30, 31 states that either the governor or the legislature or both are in the hands of my party, the Republicans. Um, and we've already had signs of uh, people with tattoos on big beefy arms being present around polling stations, particularly those where minorities will be highly present. <laughs> uh, they're there for intimidation. They're there to make sure that uh, Blacks and Hispanics and others know that the Republican Party is watching them. Um, what I've told people to do in such cases, and you know, I don't say this as expert advice, but get pictures of these people. Take your cell phone out and take pictures of them. I guarantee the FBI will love it because the FBI tells me that one of the reasons they're so fearful of these domestic terrorist groups, and that's what they call them without mincing any words, um, is because unlike Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Lashkar-e-Taiba, some of the more formidable foreign terrorists, Hezbollah even, the FBI doesn't know a lot of these domestic groups until they actually blow up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, like Timothy McVeigh did. Mm -hmm. Then they know they exist and they know what their capacity and intent is. Uh, so they're very worried about these groups. Uh, Ali Soufan has had his intelligence brief almost uh, once a week, talk about this and talk about who they are and how they're interconnected with Nazis and neo-Nazis and ultra-right-wing groups in Ukraine, in Germany, in Poland, in Hungary, how they trade back and forth with information and training material, how in this country they actually put some of their members into the U.S. Army and Marine Corps. And they get two or three years of training and then come out and train their colleagues in the domestic terrorist group. They may come out on a bad conduct discharge, even if they feel like they've got a year or two of training and they're ready to go and come back. They just get a BCD. They come out and they go back to their terrorist group. And we have no idea how many of these people they are, but I suspect they're enough to cause some real problems if they acted in some sort of unity 
and they acted with arms. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the military. I think one thing that that a lot of people don't understand is what the role of the military even could be if there is a disputed election or Trump, you know, let's say Trump loses and he's, he saber rattles like he's not going to leave or if there is a dispute and it gets drawn out. Um, I think kind of given what's happened since the murder of George Floyd and, and you know, Trump using trying to use federal law enforcement at the same time that people are talking about local police reform, there's just a real lack of clarity about what the role of the military would be in all this. Can you describe that? I think we've seen vividly what General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I'm told hundreds of flag officers, generals, admirals who weighed in afterwards, both retired and active duty uh, generals and admirals, uh, that the Constitution is that to which every military officer, NCO, and in the ranks owes their allegiance, not the man in the White House. Uh, Milley said this essentially after he made the mistake, which he admitted <clears throat> to, of accompanying Trump to St. John's Episcopal Church, where he held the Bible upside down right. and so forth. Um, that was that letter that he had distributed, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he gave a talk. Uh, it was a virtual talk, but he gave it to the National War College, which is the usual venue for doing this sort of thing. I know I wrote several of the speeches Powell gave to that <laughs> effect. Uh, we, we forget that General Powell was there when he advised H.W. Bush about the Insurrection Act with regard to the riots in Los Angeles in oh, the right. as I recall. So, uh, and, and Bush listened to Powell. Uh, Powell attenuated, softened Bush's remarks and softened his actions considerably. Um, and that's what I think Milley will do, not necessarily with Trump, but with the military. So, so th there's not going to be a military coup. There's not going to be sort of the way we think of the military coming in on the side of the incumbent government to help. I mean, in this case, it would be like an auto coup, but help them stay in power. You think the military will will stay in barracks, will stand down, and, and Trump will have, he, he'll be much more limited in his uh, ability to use law enforcement than calling on the military. I certainly hope so, and I think so. I, I do know that if... Uh... If it really gets out of hand, an ambiguous election, indecisive election, lots of contesting on both sides, people in the street with guns, um, if it gets that way, then the military is going to react the way the establishment is sensing it should act. And by that, I simply mean there are people in the government who, like when Richard Nixon was drinking a half a bottle or a bottle of Jack Daniels every afternoon by five o'clock during Watergate, and Henry Kissinger was basically running the U.S. government, um, there were people around who said, if that man's in really bad condition, I'm not following his orders. And that sort of permeated the cabinet and permeated the national security elite in force at that time, including the bureaucracy. So I think that sort of thing probably is there with Trump too now. Uh, what worries me is it's not very peopled. If you look at what he's got right now, he's even neglecting to revisit the six-month temporaries he's got in office. You may have noticed the other day they threw one out. GAO ordered one to leave his office because he's over the six months interim appointment without Senate confirmation with no intent to go before the Senate for confirmation. So the government's literally falling apart right now so that there would be this kind of understanding as there was with Nixon in his worst time 
with Trump is a little bit uh, optimistic, I think. There's just no one there to constitute this group. But I do think someone like Secretary Mark Esper uh, would think twice about carrying out or even passing on an order that he thought was illegal or immoral or unethical. Well, yeah, because presumably these people want jobs after Trump is out of office. So they're they got to take an off ramp. What what do you think Trump's off ramp is? I have my own theories about this, but I think, you know, let's say it's contested and then he loses or let's say it's a Biden blowout early on. You know, the tax revelations by The New York Times, if he's this in debt to me, the question is, how does he rebrand the brand since the brand is what made him money recently in the TV show? Um, what, what's his off ramp? Where does he, I don't, I don't mean where does he physically go, but where, what does he think his next act is? One of the things the Trump team, quote unquote, did in one of the iterations that we ran at TIP was they faded into an opposition that they thought was incredibly powerful. And the lead instrument in that opposition was what they call MAGA TV. Um, it quickly got Sheldon Adelson's millions to support it, uh, others too. Um, and it almost, if not immediately, put Fox to shame. It became the right wing media to go to. Um, and its aim was to discredit the Biden administration and to keep pumping Trump up. Uh, read, make Trump and Jared money. Right. Um, so I could see that happening. I could readily see that happening. Now, let me add that right now, listening to some of the people I know across the country who um, depressed me with their 2016 vote for Trump, I thought they were sane and sober people otherwise, but now listening to them, I think I, I detect a hint of it ain't going to work. Yes, you'll have the Rush Limbaugh you'll have the uh, Howard Stern, you know, whatever crowd, but that's a crowd that's extremely limited. And it's a crowd that most of America knows is extremely limited. And at best, it will keep its own sort of people uh, aroused, but it won't do much to help Trump or to defeat Biden's policies or programs or to disaffect the American public as to their democracy. So I'm encouraged by that. I, if he turns into a Rush Limbaugh, so be it. I mean, yeah. Rush Limbaugh needs to go away. He needed to go away a long time ago, but. Uh, TV really is Trump's medium though. And I think, you know, if he had a TV show, I mean, he had a TV show, right? That's why he's where he's at now. It made him a lot of money. When it stopped making him as much money, then he kind of looked elsewhere. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I wonder if it does, especially when you consider that, I don't know if you saw the piece we did for the Fairfax Democratic Committee uh, about three nights ago, uh, Justin Franks, Dr. Justin Franks, a psychiatrist who's written a number of books, Obama on the couch, Bush on the couch, and his latest is Trump on the couch. Um, he did a fabulous job, scared me, uh, of dissecting, analyzing, and portraying Trump's various psychi psychiatric problems from narcissism to megalomania. Um, and if you look at that, you have to say, well, you know, there are 30 million Americans on any given day who are certifiable. I, I think that's the case. Uh, any sociologist will tell you that in any culture, society, state, whatever, 
there's probably 11, 12% that ought to be in a home, <laughs> ought to be under care. Well, take, take that out there. 10% of 330 million people is 30 plus million people. Uh, that's how many nuts we have in America. So uh, yeah, the potential is there for, for Trump to make money off that bunch. Same way that Pat Robertson and Franklin Graham make money off these quote, Christians, unquote. Fundamentalists, I call them. I call them American Taliban. Um, we've got some nuts in this country. And as long as there are nuts in those numbers, some politician, George Wallace, Donald Trump, is going to try to exploit them. Yeah, I mean, 330 million people is a lot of shots on goal. And some of those are going to go in for the, <laughs> for the, certifiable, for the certifiable crowd. Um, you're a Republican. You've worked for Republican administrations. You've worked for Democratic administrations as well. Um, if, if Trump were to lose, what's, how does the Republican Party move on from Trump? What, how does it rebuild? Where does it go? That's an excellent question. It's one I've been asking myself and asking those Republican colleagues to whom I still speak almost daily. Um, I just, I see the Republican Party, people like Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton and Cruz, McConnell, a host of others going off a cliff like lemmings. Um, I see the Republican Party being in the wilderness for a long time. By the way, that's not an unaccustomed place for my party. If you go back and you look at the, the, the lineage all the way back to Jefferson and then kind of trace it through the Whigs and up through the radical Republicans with Lincoln uh -huh. and so forth, Thaddeus Stevens and those boys, um, you come forward and you find enough times where the Republicans have been in total darkness. Look at LBJ's victory in 64, won the House overwhelmingly, won the yeah. Senate overwhelmingly, won the Electoral College and the popular vote overwhelmingly, I think by the largest margins in our history to that point, um, beating Barry Goldwater. Republicans went into the wilderness. Uh, I think we're going into the deep wilderness after this one. Well, and you know, after 76, but you guys come back fairly quickly, yeah. you know, 76 to 80 and then, and then 80 was huge. Came back on the, you know, on the wings of the great communicator. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one, one thing I've been thinking about is I think there, it seems to be there's an idea, particularly in the last, you know, week when some Republican senators have distanced themselves a little, a little bit more from the president that, you know, by say 2024, a Rubio or a Cruz or a Nikki Haley is going to be able to run for president and just pretend like none of this ever happened. But the Republicans were good at running against Jimmy Carter, even through 1992. You know, it was it seems like the sort of stink of Trump is not going to go away that easily. Um, but I wonder if everybody kind of has an incentive to make it so. And I also wonder if Biden wins, what is the Biden administration going to do with former Trump officials? Um, what are they going to do with Trump? Well, those are good questions. I, I have an even bigger question, though, and it, it rankles around in my head every day and it worries the heck out of me. I don't find that much difference in the fundamental national security, financial, domestic, economic policies of either party. Um, that's not to say that I'm not going to choose a lesser evil and certainly vote for Joe Biden. But like the philosopher said, I'm going to remember that nonetheless, I voted for evil. We have a real problem in this country. We have the most significant maldistribution of wealth in our history. We have 0 0.001, 
of the population that has 60 to 70% of the wealth in its filthy, profane, obscene hands. We have 400 families in America who own the wealth of the GDP of Brazil. We've never had anything like this, not even in 1929. We are headed for a significant crash. And let me tell you, the people that built this state as we are right now are Bob Rubin, Larry Summers, Timothy Geithner, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, a whole host of both sides of the political aisle. They're both responsible. If we don't come up with some leadership in the Congress, in the presidency very soon, that looks to change that and to change it dramatically, well, we don't need to worry about elections. Do you think Biden and Harris will be pulled in that direction? I mean, I guess if they win the Senate and they keep the House. If they're not, we're in trouble. Um, one of the first things I'm going to watch to see if they do is set up this uh, infrastructure reconstruction bank so that we can raise the four to five trillion dollars that we need without putting more debt on the country immediately to do the bridges, the water systems, the roads, the levees, the dams and so forth that are gonna take our economy apart over the next 20 years or so and to do it resiliently and sustainably so that the new infrastructure is able to ride out the climate crisis and survive the climate crisis. If they don't do that, if we don't get started on that very quickly, we're in real trouble. And then the other thing they need to do, as soon as they're in office, we should have done it three years ago, four years ago, is to reinvigorate nuclear arms control. We're getting ready in February to discard the last remnant of nuclear arms control. And we've got people in Russia and in this country, in the military, now talking about the utility of nuclear weapons on the battlefield. This is obscene and absurd. We hadn't done this since 1950, 51, 52. We got out of that because we realized over those years of the Cold War that any use of nuclear weapons is existential. We're apt to destroy the human race. And yet here we are again, we've exited all the arms control we don't seem to be thinking even about the February elapse of the start, new start regime. Um, we've got some real problems and Biden's gonna have to take them on immediately. Well, you sound like a Democrat. I sound like an American. I <laughs> <laughs> um, so to kind of wrap up, I mean, what, what do you see as kind of the biggest fear, the biggest threat, the biggest challenge, um, but also what are you telling your students right now about kind of what the biggest hope is or what their role is in protecting this election? And people have asked me that question and, you know, kind of beyond voting, what can students and citizens do and think about? That's an interesting question because that's the reason I'm teaching and the reason I keep on driving 300 miles every week to teach at William & Mary where I think the youngsters are really top drawer. Um, I put them in the NSA, I put them in the FBI, I put them at the National Geospatial Agency, I put them at the National Reconnaissance Office, I put them in the Congress. I, I, my students go everywhere and I tell them, look, I apologize. My generation has screwed this world up so badly and this country up so badly that we are leaving you not only with a home mortgage on your back when you depart this institution because your education was so expensive, we're leaving you with a country that has done nothing to prepare, prepare for the existential 
uh, crisis that's coming with the climate change, done nothing to deal with this nuclear problem we have now uh, since 2002 in the Moscow Treaty. We've done nothing. That's 18 years we've done nothing about the most dangerous weapons in the world. I apologize. It's up to you now. You better take your imagination, your creativity, your energy, your dynamism, and your talent all amplified and deepened here at Women Mary and tackle these problems right off the bat. It's not just about voting. You should vote, yes, but it's about getting into these bureaucracies and not going to Goldman Sachs, not going to Deloitte Touche, not going to make a million dollars in your first year, but going to help your country, to work for your country, to work against Goldman Sachs at the SEC, for example. That's what you need to do. That's what every person in America who has the talent, skill, and education needs to do. Well, I graduated from the college before you taught there uh, in 2003, but I was able to take a class with uh, General Anthony Zinni, and he- I took his you know, place. Okay, yeah, and he very much gave the same message, particularly because that was during the, uh, the invasion of Iraq, but I think it's good for students to hear the, it's good to students, it's good for students to hear from people who have served in government and been public servants giving them that message because I think it's very easy to look at the news and just become very disenchanted. First of all, the government works for anybody, but also that working for the government or, or being a public servant is at all noble. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, in fact, people like presidential candidates that haven't been public servants and they don't like presidential candidates that have a long career in public service. Right, and that's why they make so many big errors. <laughs> Most dangerous thing, un undoubtedly. I mean, I teach 1945 to the present day, and I teach faithful decision making. That is to say, those decisions that send young men and young women to die for state purposes and to kill others for state purposes. And I will tell you, in that time frame, we have not had, we have not had a good president other than Dwight Eisenhower, and he's got lots of foibles associated with him too, but at least he understood. The most dangerous thing I think any of my case study presenters would tell you, they present case studies on these decisions, is an inexperienced president. And what you've just said is why we have inexperienced presidents. Well, Eisenhower warned us about Nixon, didn't he? <laughs> I think when he was asked by a reporter if he could come up with something Nixon had contributed to his administration, he said, you know, typical Eisenhower, hmm, if you'll give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I think that's a, that's a great place to end. Uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.